Father, thank you so much for your word, which you have given us from your own mouth, your own breath. We thank you for the hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ to us, members of this church, to guests, and to all that we might encounter this week. I pray that you would use the word today to give us courage, help our hearts be shaped by compassion, give us new eyes to see others around us the way that you do. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Was there anyone in your mind, someone specific or a category of people that you feel quite certain might never become a Christian and be baptized? That person may be atheistic, alcoholic, woke, liberal, conservative, trans, maybe a hard-hearted abuser, maybe a scolding, mean wife, or an aloof, lazy husband, maybe someone struggling with depression, maybe someone with mental illness, maybe a CEO, maybe a clerk at the gas station, maybe the homeless person that you passed on the corner on the way here today. Is there simply anyone that you could name personally or any category who you might just be shocked or who you might actually just simply don't have confidence could or would ever become a Christian? It's one of the main points in Acts 8 through 9. The news of Jesus is providentially spreading according to plan, even there and even to them. That's really the three points of the sermon today. The news of Jesus is providentially spreading according to plan, even there and even to them. First, we see that the gospel is spreading by providential persecution. Point number one. The gospel is spreading by providential persecution. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says for us, And Saul approved of his, that was Stephen's execution, the previous chapter. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now that might sound like the church is being pushed around and that they are really losing the battle in Jerusalem. Persecuted, kicked out of town, certainly the first recipients of Acts would have been tempted to feel that way, being under persecution. I wonder if you might feel that way. Maybe Christianity doesn't feel like it's always going according to plan. How are things going for the West in Christianity? Or a few years ago, I was asked, don't you concern that the church is shrinking in America? Or think about China, for that matter. I recall years ago hearing a missionary left his computer at a coffee shop accidentally. That computer was picked up and handed over to the Chinese authorities, which they used to find the names of locations of many missionaries in China, who they hunted down and sent home. Maybe you felt something like that here. Your protections, your favor, your freedom are somewhat infringed upon. Maybe there's just some pain, some tragedy in your life that just 
You cannot imagine that this is somehow according to God's plan. It sure would have seemed like that to Christians who were in Jerusalem being persecuted, then Stephen is killed, and then they were sent out of town. Surely the Christians reading Acts later were facing the same scenarios. I want you to see this morning how the persecution is actually the providential means of things going exactly according to plan. Remember, they went to Judea and Samaria because of persecution. They were scattered, they were spread out. But Judea and Samaria were part of the plan all along, weren't they? You might remember back from Acts chapter 1. When Jesus commissions the apostles, he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. See how Acts 8.1 is the means through the accomplishment of the plan in Acts 1.8. I wonder if there's not some obstacle in your life which did not seem like the plan for you. Some misfortune, some redirection. I just want you to know the news of Jesus often spreads through unseen, even tragic, painful circumstances to providentially accomplish the plan he has in mind. 173 years ago, 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was trudging up the Heath Hill in Colchester on his way to church when a snowpocalypse or modern words, were prevented, from, prevented him from going any further. He turned the corner and made his way to a small Methodist church. And hearing the call to look at Christ there, by someone who wasn't even a preacher, hearing the call to look at Christ from Isaiah, Spurgeon said, There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And the moment I saw the sun, I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of themes of the precious blood of Christ. How many that day, I wonder, were stuck home complaining about the snow and the cold. And all the while, God was using it convert, to convert one of the most influential European preachers in the 19th century. But isn't that all of our stories? And isn't that somehow God works so many times in the Bible? Isn't persecution what led Joseph into Egypt? And didn't God use that to save Israel? Isn't fleeing for his life the road that led Moses to leading all of Israel. Have you come yet to see God's providence often comes through pain? In Acts chapter 8, through persecution. This is a moment in the progression of Acts, the gospel going out from nation to nation to, to relook at some of the things that are going wrong in your own life and those things around you, those things happening in our church, and just rethink them and think maybe God is using those to get the good news to someone that I can't even imagine yet. Some place I might not have thought to go. See, even the slightest misfortunes or the greatest disasters as possible redirections from mission headquarters. What if God is displacing you from your plans in order to see someone you could never imagine coming to know Christ? I'll just encourage you, if you're looking for something to read this afternoon, you want to spend a few hours reading, read from here. You can even go back to the beginning, but read from Acts, Acts 8 forward and just look for the chains of providence. This event happens, which leads to this event, which leads to this event, which leads to these people coming to know Christ. 
And you could take those chains backward, and if that didn't happen, and that didn't happen, and that didn't happen, then that person would have never heard of Christ. See how we get to 8.1, we don't see persecution merely as the plan going wrong, but the very means of God accomplishing His plan from Acts 1.8. Stephen's death was the crescendo of persecution. They had gone from annoyed to angry to threatening to finally they stoned Stephen. Enough, we're going to start killing Christians in Jerusalem. And that led to the spread of Christians in the surrounding regions right into Jesus' plan to spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria. God providentially accomplishing His plan even through persecution. Do you have that kind of sovereignty in mind about God? Do you have that kind of hopefulness about the worst thing that might ever happen in your life being somehow used for good? Just like God did on the cross through Christ. Consider what it would have meant for the gospel to go to Judea and Samaria. How might that have landed to the original hearers in their context? Point two is that the gospel goes even to that place. The gospel is even for that place. God is providentially accomplishing His plan even in that place. Notice the place where 8, chapter 1 through 9, 31 takes place. Before... Megan read the passage and it was announced how much would be read. I won't say who, but someone over in this area, over here, leaned over and asked, why so long? (laughs) Maybe this will give you an answer. Look at 8, chapter 1. We're going to see what we call in Simeon Trust uh, workshops a a top and a tail, a beginning and an end. A seminary word would be inclusio, a beginning and a conclusion. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it's all approved of the execution. There arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now look at the other end of that inclusio. Chapter 9, verse 31, where we're stopping today. So, given everything in between, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, we see that that geographic place mentioned again, Judea and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. Well, as we've already seen in the first point this morning, this geographical direction is part of the plan commissioned by Christ in Acts 1.8. But what does it mean to the readers to know and see the gospel was going out and being accepted and received in places like Samaria? It would have landed in the original readers like telling Chinese Christians the gospel was being received by people in Japan. Or like telling southern rebels at a certain time in our history that people in New York were becoming Christians. Or Ukrainian Christians hearing that KGB agents were coming and turning to Jesus Christ. Samaria was the northern part of old Israel territory. It was originally part of the land of Canaan which was given to the people of Israel in Joshua. It was inhabited, however, now by pagans and half-breeds, intermingled Jews with Gentiles. There was bad blood, bad history between Jerusalem, Judah, and Samaria, the Israel of the north. Toward the end of the period of the kings in Israel, God punished the northern tribes of Israel for their idolatry by displacing them from the land. 
Israel, known as the northern tribes. You can turn there with me if you like, or you can just write down 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. This is the record of when God said, enough is enough. I have been watching, listening, I've been sending prophets, you've been denying them, you continue to worship idols in the land. And God is now going to discipline them, to judge them. And look at what He's going to do. Acts and 2 Kings 17.6 In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. That's northern Israel. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Took the Israelites out of their land. And placed them in Halah. And on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Go down to verse 24. 2 Kings 17, verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Seraphavim, and, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Do you see the exchange? And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. God said, you're done, you're out. The Assyrians let the Babylonians come in and inhabit that whole area. And if you keep reading through chapter 17, they didn't just come and you know, set up businesses and uh, you know, make vacation homes there. They came in with their gods. They came in northern Israel and they built temples and altars for their gods and worshipped them in that land so that Samaria became a pagan, godless land. It was a part of the land that had been apportioned to Joshua that was promised to Abraham, but now it's lost to Babylonians and false gods. So there's a great divide between the people of Israel in Judah and the people of Samaria. So much so that it was one of the most shocking things about Jesus' ministry that He ministered in Samaria. He went into Samaria and He ministered multiple occasions to Samaritans. There, in that place, He intentionally entered Samaria, interacted with Samaritans. You might remember the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus you know, showed that he knew his history. Excuse me, he knew her history, that she was a serial adulterer. And Jesus offered her, you know, ask, at first asked for water and then offered her living water while ironically they're standing at Jacob's well. You might remember how the conversation went in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 9, Jesus says, Hey, can you, can you give me some water? And her reply is, and how John records it, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John the author adds, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus 
does. This is a deep historical religious divide and Jesus intentionally crossed those lines. Let me just ask you, is there anyone that you think doesn't have dealings with Jesus? Anyone that you think is a person that Jesus would not deal with? He would not go there. He wouldn't go to their house. He would not talk to them. He would avoid them in public. Is there anyone who's not welcome at your home because of their status in the world? The gospel of Jesus is crossing into the land where Jews have no dealings. Why? Because God has dealings there. Because the gospel has dealings there. Because Jesus has something to deal with there. This is the shape of the gospel itself. The good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus was with God and is God and came from heaven down to earth. I mean, you want to talk about a chasm between places that have no dealings. Holy, righteous, exclusive, secluded heaven where God dwells with His angels and earth. Where from the very beginning when we sinned against God, we were removed from the garden, removed from the presence of God, removed from peace with God. A world filled with darkness and murder and hatred and division and natural disasters. And Jesus went from heaven and He came to earth and was born as a man to die for men that He might have dealings with us on earth. That He might save us from our sin. When He died on the cross, He died as a sacrificial lamb. His blood was spilled to wash away our sin so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we could be reunited with God in heaven. Spiritually. Even though we haven't been there yet. Through Jesus, Ephesians 3 says, we both, all Jews and Gentiles, have access in spirit to the Father, to God. One mediator between all men. Jesus has dealings with anyone. He came to save all sinners on the earth. Jesus exemplified this in the life of his interaction with Samaritans, as I mentioned. In Luke chapter 17, there's a moment when Jesus was coming through the area of Samaria. And he healed ten lepers. There were ten lepers lined up in a row all crying out for Him to come heal them, for Him to come save them. Jesus went and healed all ten lepers. But there was only one leper that dared make his way over to Jesus, bow down before His feet, and thank Him and praise Him for saving Him. And wouldn't you know, Luke makes sure to tell us it was a Samaritan. The one who found peace with God through Christ. One of those Babylonian descended pagans. Half-breed that might have been somehow intermixed. And now he had leprosy. was unclean in every way. He was the one who was healed not only in his body but in heart. To come be thankful for salvation. Samaria was like a despised land, like the outlands and the elephant graveyard and the Lion King given over to hyenas. It was lost to pagans, and it was the first stop out of Jerusalem when they killed Stephen. 
It was the first stop for the gospel when they were spread out of Jerusalem. Christians went right into Judea and into Samaria and all that history and all those people. That's the third point. The gospel is spreading providentially through persecution even to those places, even to those people. Even those people is a third point. There are three conversions in this passage which mark the span and the breadth of those who are saved in Judea and Samaria. Megan read it for us. There is a magician influencer, there's a foreign eunuch, and there's a fanatical Pharisee. Each of these three represent people who you would just not imagine they would turn from their ways, from their lot in life, and actually follow Jesus Christ in faith. Much less those shocking that they would even be welcomed among Christians. That they would even be accepted. We get the sense that Luke is writing these three examples. I think Saul is probably the most obvious because he becomes an apostle. But Luke is writing these three examples because of how shocking it would have been for the hearer to learn that even these people became Christians. Look at chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. People have been coming to Christ in Philip's ministry. There was a man named Simon. Many people have been coming to Christ through Philip's signs and his preaching of the gospel. But then we move on to a specific person. He picks someone out of all the accounts of all these people who've been coming Christians in the crowds, both men and women, and we focus on this one, Simon. But, transition, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest. Now, that's influence. It's one thing to be 14-year-old and have influence with 14-year-olds. It's another thing to be 60-year-old and have influence with 60-year-olds. This man has those influence with the least of the greatest. This saying, all people were saying about this man, this man is the power of God. That is called great. Oof. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So who is Simon? He's a social influencer. He amazed them with magic. He was someone great. People paid attention to him. All kinds of people for a long time. Not the person you would have thought would have come to Christ at, pre at Philip's first preaching. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, many people. Even, you see the word even? Even Simon himself. It would be one thing if the gospel were to take a few people off the fringes of Simon's following. But to see Simon himself, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Luke shows even Simon himself, one of the last guys in the region you would expect, even someone with the following, someone with status, someone with influence, even Simon the magician, and even the Ethiopian eunuch. Chapter 8, verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasurer. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. 
Now, one of the things we realize, one of the things that helps us realize that this man is being used as a great example of the extent of the gospel is we don't even know his name. We don't even know who this guy is. We just know that he's the eunuch. You know, how'd you like to have a nickname for that? Just tag you forever. This was someone who was not religiously welcome and had everything socially to lose. He was a foreigner, which means he had limited access to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. He was a eunuch, which means likely he would have been a castrated male. That way would make him fit to serve the queen. So there might not be any temptations. There might not be any accusations. But according to Deuteronomy, according to the Jewish law, it says that anyone with his condition is not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. It's a law. You cannot enter the assembly of the Lord if that is your anatological state. They're not permitted. Which is perhaps why he goes to Jerusalem but did not have anyone to explain Isaiah to him. Something about him in his role would have shown he was a eunuch in connection with the queen. So he goes into Jerusalem and he comes back out and Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, how can I know unless there's no one to tell, unless someone tells me? We get the picture that the eunuch went into Jerusalem and according to the law was not welcomed in the assembly of the Jews. And so he leaves having no idea what Isaiah 53 is about. And while he was rejected by the Jews in the assembly, he came out onto the road and God providentially brings Philip and says, don't leave just yet. Don't get away so fast. Let me explain to you what that means. God puts Philip in his path, explains Isaiah 53, is about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. The eunuch seems to begin to grasp he's included in this. He could be saved from sin. And so he asks what can keep me from being baptized? The answer is nothing. Nothing, eunuch. You might not be welcome in the assembly in Jerusalem, but you're welcome in the assembly of Jesus Christ because He died for your sins. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's the magician. There's the eunuch. And then there's the religious fanatic converted out there in Samaria. Saul. Saul was a zealous Pharisee who was persecuting Christians, chasing them down, putting them in prison. A fanatic means someone who is religiously single-minded and fixed on something. We usually think of fanatics as annoying because they're so fixed. It's like my dog Ranger on a you know, raccoon trail in the backyard. It's really frustrating. It's hard to get him off track. Paul is fixed on persecuting Christians. And he got letters from Jerusalem from the chief priests to go pursue them in Damascus and put Christians in prison. It even says, chapter 8.1 begins this whole section with something about Saul. He approved Stephen's execution. That's a good thing in Saul's mind. But what happens? He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. You should say Jesus meets him. It's an incredible account that leaves Saul blind for a few days. But Luke does not so much seem to focus on the miracle of how Saul was converted to faith. Let me tell that story. But instead, that Saul, of all people, was converted to faith in Christ. 
The people were so afraid of Saul. I just think this is, I don't, need, I don't know another interpretation, so if you have a different interpretation than this later that is helpful, come to me. But the people were so afraid of Saul that it seems like Ananias talked back to the Lord in a vision. The Lord gave Ananias a vision and said, there's this religious fanatic, been persecuting Christians, named Saul, he's going to be saved, he's going to come talk to you. He's going to be a Christian now, I want you to meet him. In the vision, it seems, where the Lord is speaking to him, Ananias replies, uh, yeah, him, um, I heard about him doing evil to Christians in Jerusalem. Now he's here to persecute Christians here. You've got to be pretty afraid to talk back to the Lord in a dream. It was such a big deal to see Saul talking like he was a Christian that when he went back to visit the apostles in Jerusalem, they did not believe that he was a disciple. They could not believe it. Not him. Not him. 9.26 says they were afraid of him. See how Luke is signifying with these examples, yes, even them. Good news of Jesus, providence spreading as planned, even there, even to them. They've gone from being people, the, the last people, the magician, the eunuch, and the fanatic, the last people you would ever think to come and be saved through faith in Christ. And now they are among the first people the first people in Samaria to baptize, to be baptized and bear the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Of all places, and all people, Samaria and these men. Their baptisms are sealing the testimony that they are walking with Jesus Christ. You should believe it when you hear that these have become Christians. Each one of them were baptized. The magician, baptized. The eunuch, baptized. Saul, baptized. It's incredible it's incredible. They are now bearing the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't just hear that they were interested in Jesus. Don't just hear that they were swooned somehow into the movement of Jesus. But those are now bearers of the Father, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are a part of the people of God. You know what this means for you? One of the things this means for you is that you, you are not in a place and you are not, in a, you are not a person who is out of reach of God's forgiveness. You don't live on a side of town, you're not from a certain country, you're not from a certain familial background. You've not committed some sin, you've not been more opposed than someone else. You're not a part of a certain group. You're not cut off because of a surgery that you had or a procedure that you had. The gospel that Jesus died on the cross for sin includes your sin. Wherever you are, you can come to There is nothing stopping you from coming to God today to pray and trust for forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. There's no sin that you've committed that is so great that Jesus cannot secure forgiveness through His blood for you. If that's you today, you just never heard that, never thought that. Maybe you thought, I was too far gone. I grew up in some Christian things, but then I got away. And I just don't know if it's there for me anymore. It's there for you. If you would repent and confess your sin. I'm going to talk about what it means to be baptized. Each of these three were baptized. They came to be formally recognized 
publicly as bearing the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now declared a part of the people of God. You know what this means for you if you're a believer? If you're following Jesus Christ? It means we all had a little we all ought to have a little bit of Paul's testimony. Not so much the testimony that he was walking in the road and the Lord appeared to him and blinded him. But that someone would save someone, that Jesus would save someone like Saul. As you read the New Testament, Paul doesn't so much talk about the amazing experience that he had on the road to Damascus, but about the incredible, unbelievable forgiveness that was extended to him by grace through Jesus. What was he so amazed about was that I'm saved. Not how I got saved, but that I am included in salvation. Paul says the saying is trustworthy, he tells Timothy. It's deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, remember, it is because of your sin that Jesus died. It's because of God's love that you have been forgiven. Let that be your testimony. Even me, you couldn't imagine the things that God had to forgive me of. In Jesus Christ. That's our testimony. And for us, this means practically what it meant in Acts chapter 8 and 9 that the gospel is even for them, even there, even for others. What's your category? What's your person that you think might never come to faith? You can probably tell by those that you don't think it's worth inviting them to church. Maybe someone you just think it's not worth inviting them over to our home. It's not worth talking to them at work. Because inside I kind of write them off as fixed, as on a path that you can't come back from. Consider the modern example of Beckett Cook. You can find his full testimony and interview at the Gospel Coalition. In 2009 he did an interview with the Gospel Coalition to share about coming to faith. The article begins like this. Ten years ago, Beckett Cook was a gay man in Hollywood who had achieved great success as a set designer in the fashion industry. He worked with stars and supermodels, from Natalie Portman to Claudia Schiffer, traveling the world to design photo shoots uh, for the likes of Vogue or Harper's Bazaar. He attended award shows and parties in the homes of Paris Hilton and Prince. He spent summers swimming in Drew Barrymore's pool. What changed for Beckett Cook? He met Jesus. On a momentous day in September 2009, while drinking coffee with her friend at Intelligentsia in L.A.'s Silver Lake neighborhood, that's a coffee shop, Cook started chatting with a group of young people sitting at a nearby table. Physical Bibles opened in front of them. They were from Los Angeles Church, And they invited Cook to visit. And he did that Sunday. And he confessed his sin and believed in Jesus Christ that day. See how that lands in our church and our cultures? That's the magician. It's the eunuch. The fanatic. All the waves of culture, all the hurt, all the confusion. And then God's providence meets Beckett. And some Christian, with their Bible open, invited him to church. We could do this all day. We could share of 
Mosab Hassan Youssef, his testimony from his book, Son of Hamas. He was the son of one of the founders of the Hamas terrorist organization. He was eventually pulled over to be a double agent for both Hamas and Israel's uh, intelligence service. His cover was that he would go back to Jerusalem as a student. So Hamas thought that he was being a student in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Israel intelligence would meet him there and send him back into Hamas. While on the campus of the University of Jerusalem, Mossab was invited by a, a, a student, a fellow student working for a crusader there through Crusaders for Christ. She invited him to a Bible study. And this man working as a double agent for a terrorist organization in Israel intelligence said this would probably be really good cover is af, is, that is af, uh, as a student, I would go do something like this on a university campus. Meanwhile, in his heart, he was very interested. He has no knowledge of Christianity. So he went to provide cover, but in his heart, be interested, and he became a Christian. I was baptized in the Jordan River. I want you to watch your life this week. See of some providence, perhaps even a very painful providence, does not land you in the presence of some lost soul. And if so, remember the magician. Remember the eunuch and the fanatic that came to Christ. There is no one that we should look at because of their status, where they're from, what they've done, what they are wearing, their political leanings. There is no one that we should look at and think, well, they could never come. They would never come. See everyone as sinners in need of Christ. See everyone as having access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Talk to people about Christ. Name His name. Tell the story. Take your Bible to the coffee shop. Open it up. Invite anyone to church. Invite anyone to come sit with you and see what this is all about. Say what Saul, the former fanatical Pharisee, later said in his letter to Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we uh, look through the eyes of men and the eyes of the world and the statuses of the world and sins of the world and we forget your power, the power to save even those out there, even those people. Help us remember that we are no different, that our sin against you is no less grave. We are no less transgressors of the law. We ought to be of the most humble people in the world. Help us look at your providence this week as we go out into the world, as we, we get into traffic and we are late places and we are stumbled into people that we did not plan to and might even experience things that cause us pain. Help us keep your providence in mind. Help us keep what you might be doing in mind for your glory, for our joy and for the joy of someone who might come to know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.